Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 19. You know that um, when I survey the wondrous cross, when I've been asked in the past, or we've talked, I've had conversations with people, and we've talked about our favorite hymns, our favorite verses of hymns, our favorite stanzas of hymns, and always my answer to that is the last verse of when I survey the wondrous cross. That idea that if I had everything in my power to give to the Lord, to say thank you for what you've done, it would be a gift far too small. And the result, we give everything we have, my life, my all, to the Lord. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about these words of Jesus that he speaks from that cross, where we see the Savior of the world die, where we see the Son of God die for my sins and for yours. And as we've talked about these words that have come from Jesus' mouth, the idea is that these words have life-altering power. And words have that. In fact, sometimes one word can change your life. A simple word can change the direction of your life. Many of us that are guys in the room here have at some point in our lives gotten down on one knee and asked a certain question to a significant other. And at that moment, we just want a one-word answer. Right? Now, I'll tell you, I don't know that I've ever been more nervous in my life. Some people ask me, you know, like, hey, you know, Lyle, what you do, I could never do, get up in front of people. This is all, I could always, for whatever reason, the Lord gave me this, I just always was, I was fine, get up in front of people. In fact, when I was a kid, this may shock some of you, I used to sing solos at church, um, and then I became a teenager, and they no longer asked me to sing solos at church, and so I started talking. Like, being in front of people has never been something that's scared me or made me nervous, But the night I proposed to Susan, I was visibly shaking and nervous. We had gone together to pick out the ring. It really wasn't in doubt, I hoped, of the answer that was coming. But I was nervous. And when you get down on one knee and you ask the significant other, the love of your life, will you marry me? In that moment, one word will change your life forever. Either way. And if there's more than one word, there's probably an issue developing there. Right? If you say, will you marry me, and a paragraph comes, that's not what you're looking for. A few tears, a little, this happening, like, yes, changes your life. No, at that moment, probably also changes your life, but one word changes your life. Accepted. Rejected. Employed. Cancer, divorce, promoted, terminated, healed. Words have significant impact on our lives. And sometimes all it takes is one word. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at these passages of Scripture throughout the Gospels that give us the last words of Jesus. Jesus was on the cross for six hours, and while he is on the cross, he uttered seven things, all of them significant. And today, we're going to kind of cover the last few moments of his life. He spoke three things in those last few moments. We've already seen the words that were significant before, but perhaps the most significant word is nestled in the midst of these three sayings that are at the end. 
So as we open up your Bibles to John chapter 19, what I want to do is read something that's not going to be on the screen. We're going to actually pick up for most of today in verses 28 through 30. But I want to read the scene again just to remind us of what's happening as we've been around this crucifixion, around the story of the crucifixion in the various Gospels. I just want to remind us of what's happening, of where Jesus is. Starting in verse 16, it says this, chapter 19 of John, verse 16. Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had made a sign and put it on the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in any language they wanted, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but write on there, he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. Now, we're going to pick up in just a moment. If you remember, we talked about that particular passage a few weeks ago. But what happens here in John is interesting because John, who had focused in on the last week of Jesus more than any of the other Gospels, half of the book of John is on the last week of the life of Jesus. And he focuses it on that. What's interesting to me is that when you get to the crucifixion, John doesn't give us a lot of details about the crucifixion. In fact, what we have here is a moment where we think that when he tells his Mother, this is your son, to John, and John, this is your mother. That was fairly early on in the crucifixion process, in the six hours of the crucifixion. That was probably early on. And then we have in verse 28, where we're going to jump at in just a minute, it says, after this. And what's interesting is that after this encapsulates a lot of stuff. In fact, it encapsulates his entire life, his entire ministry, his entire purpose for coming. But in the midst of this, what he's saying after this, what he's really saying is there was a period of time in here that John doesn't want to talk about. Now, we don't have a good understanding of that. We don't have John's explanation for why he didn't want to talk about it. But the reality is John did not want to talk about this stuff. He didn't give us details about what happened in those hours. And John was the one that was there. Perhaps it was too painful for him to watch. Perhaps he was trying to put it out of his mind. He didn't feel like it needed to be said. Perhaps in John's economy, as he's writing this theologically to tell us about God, he thinks that's unimportant. But what happens here is he skips a phrase of time. And what we need to understand is during that passage of time, during those six hours, during especially the last three hours, as we talked about last week, that it had been darkness over the land. And that darkness represented the fact that Jesus was bearing for those three hours the sin of the world upon himself that the last three hours of jesus life would have been the most physically painful experience anyone could imagine it would have been emotionally the most painful experience anyone could imagine and it would have been spiritually the most painful experience anyone could imagine and john here may be one of those people that just can't tell those details but he says after that 
When Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. You know what I love about that particular part of this passage? Before we even get to the words that Jesus says. Is it reminds us that even though it did not appear this way. And the people around the cross would not have expected this when they put him on the cross. In the midst of Jesus being crucified. He is still in absolute control. When Jesus knew it was done. He allows himself to die. That's what it says right? When he knew that everything had been fulfilled, when he knew his purpose had been done, when he knew that it was over, when he knew that it had come to completion, he knew it was time. Throughout his life, that had been the case, that he had often gone back and forth and people would say, hey, listen, Jesus, be careful, you don't need to go there. And Jesus would just walk into dangerous places because he was confident of the fact that when it was time, it was time. But it wasn't time until he was ready for it to be time. And the same is true in his death. And so he says that as the scripture had been fulfilled, that everything was there, he says the phrase, I'm thirsty. Now what's interesting about that is, That's another one of those phrases that you just look at and you think, oh man, Jesus is thirsty. And it does speak to the humanity of Jesus. It does talk to the frailty of Jesus, the fragility of his life at this moment. Perhaps he's asking for some water because he's got two more statements to come forth. He's got to be able to say forward, hey, listen, I'm about to say two more things that are important for you to hear. But we also know that this particular phrase serves a function. You see, he had already been offered water before all of this happened. At the beginning of the crucifixion, they offered him some water with myrrh. And the purpose of that was that there was something in that that would kind of numb the pain, that would make him not feel as much pain as he would on the cross. It was given to men because their screams and their cries on the cross were so terrible that people standing around it could not bear to hear it and so they gave them things to help numb the pain in some way and in jesus's case when he's offered that at the beginning of the crucifixion he refuses well the reason he refuses is because he didn't want anything to numb or to take away experiencing the full pain of what was about to happen i want you to think about that for a minute for you and i that when our head starts to ache just a little bit run for the tylenol Like Jesus said, no, I don't want anything to hold back from the pain and the suffering that's about to come. But at this moment, perhaps he is parched. I I have no doubt about that. He would have been. But he's also saying this because it fulfills a piece of prophecy. God intended to fulfill the work and purpose of, for which he sent Jesus throughout Jesus' entire life. And you can see Jesus constantly reminding people that he is the one that has come. He is fulfilling God's plan. He is fulfilling the prophecies that have been foretold. Now, he is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament Messiah that would come. When you look at the Old Testament, one scholar has said there are 48 major prophecies about the Messiah. The manner of birth is told in Isaiah. The place of birth is told in Micah. The ancestry is told in Genesis and Jeremiah. The manner of death is told in Isaiah. The betrayal, the false witnesses, the manner of death, and the resurrection are all predicted in the Psalms. People have said, well, well, 
couldn't somebody just kind of fall into that stuff, some of that stuff? And one mathematician said it would be absolutely impossible for someone to fall in to getting all of those 48 prophecies exactly in their lives. In fact, he said for just eight of those, the chance that somebody would fulfill just eight prophecies is one in 100 million billion. Or... If you were to take silver dollars and put them on the state of Texas, it would 100 million billion silver dollars would stack coins two feet deep over the entire state of Texas. And he said the chances that somebody could just magically fulfill those on their own is to reach into that two foot deep pile of silver dollars that are entire state of Texas and choose the one that has what marking on it. And that's just for eight. This mathematician named Peter Stoner says that for someone to fulfill all 48 prophecies like Jesus did, the chances of that just happening are one in a trillion, 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 trillion. That sounds like my kids trying to tell me how much they I love them or they love me. You know, like I love you a million. I love you a billion. No, a trillion, 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 trillion. They just keep adding on, right? When Jesus says, I'm thirsty, he's continuing the process of fulfilling prophecy. In Psalm 69.3, it talks about his throat being parched, the one that is being persecuted for his faith. And he says in Psalm 69.21, And in the end, when I requested, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus, it said there, when he said, I am thirsty, it said they lifted up on a pole of hyssop and then it was sour wine. You know what's fascinating to me about Jesus in this moment? Is that his most difficult moments of his life, what comes forth from him in those moments is scripture. And he is reminding us that we can trust every detail of the word of God. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus had not said this on the cross, nobody would look and said, see, that proves he's not the Messiah because he didn't say I'm thirsty. But by him saying it, he shows that every detail of the word of God is important and for to be known. And he bleeds scripture. When he's tested in the desert, when he's tempted in the desert by the enemy, he quotes Deuteronomy regularly. When he gets on the cross, it's not only this that he quotes that's from the Psalms. He's also quoted Psalm 22.1 last week when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? We talked about that. And when the last words he will say, not in John, but in the, another account, it says that at the end he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He prayed and then he died. That is a direct quote of Psalm 31.5. Everything about Jesus was saturated with Scripture. Tim Keller said, when you prick Jesus, when you stab Jesus, he bled Scripture. He knew Scripture so well, he thought about Scripture so pervasively, it's so saturated, so permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped every part of him. And when he's pricked, that's what comes out. Now, I would ask today what comes out when you get in a real difficult situation or you get in a real painful situation, but I wouldn't want some of you to lie in church. Some of you have to say scripture or a prayer after you say whatever comes out of you when you get in those situations. I heard a couple of amens on that, all right. For Jesus, it was scripture. And so he knows it's time. He asked for some water to speak his final words. And he says this. 
when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It's been called the greatest word in history. Because it is finished is one word. We talked about this a couple of years ago. It is a powerful, powerful word. One word. When you break it down to the essence of what it is, like I used to have to do in Greek classes a long time ago, it is a third person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative verb. And all God's people said, whatever, right? And all of that's important, but here's the most important part. The first thing that you need to understand is, he's not saying he is finished. He's not saying that he is done. He is saying it is finished. There is something out there that he is finishing. It is not finishing on its own. He is bringing it into practice. There's also this understanding that in the word, what is being said is what is happening right now. What I am saying right now, this being finished, is something that is happening at this moment. This is the starting point, but it will have effects into the eternal future. This is not a one and done. This is a forever and always and it is a declarative statement of truth and so Jesus says listen to me it is finished you say well what in the world is finished what's he talking about what is finished in his life what is done and there are lots of things that you could go down. In fact, when I originally made my, my sermon notes, I had about 20 things on here. And I cut it to five. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right? The first thing that I think that we know for sure is finished when Jesus says that is his suffering. No one ever experienced the suffering that Jesus did on the cross. No one. I know some of you in this room have had very, very difficult lives. Some of you in this room have had very difficult family situations. Some of you in this room have very difficult um, paths in your life that you've gone down roads that you shouldn't go down, and it's caused you much pain and suffering. Some of you have physical ailments that cause you pain, literal pain and suffering. Some of you have relationships that have broken you and have caused you physical and emotional and spiritual pain. But let me tell you this. There has been no one that has experienced what Jesus experienced in those last few hours of his life. And when he declares, now we don't know if he just kind of whispered this. We don't know if he used every bit of strength he had left to shout it. We're not sure how it comes across. I wish it had stage directions sometimes here where John tells us exactly how it was done. We can't tell that from the original language how it's done. But what is said here is simply that it is done. And in that moment, he is literally giving up all that is there and saying, I am finished with the suffering of my body. That he who was God has come to earth and lived among us for 33 years. And in that 33 years, he lived among us. He experienced everything you and I would experience. He fasted for 40 days. He was hungry. He lived in a time when most people of his time, including him, would have been malnourished by our standards. Would have had no good, really good places. Would have had to walk miles or would have had to find places to be able to have good drinking water that wasn't contaminated. 
He didn't come to the most technologically advanced time in history where he could have comfort. He came to a difficult time in a difficult place. And he lived there for 33 years. And then when he got to the end of his life, in the last 12 to 24 hours of his life, he was betrayed by his friends. He was, his friends ran away from him. He was beaten within an inch of his life. His back was flayed open by all the things that were done to him. He was mocked. He was spat upon. And then he was hoisted onto the device that is considered the most painful way for a human being to die in the history of the world and at the end of it he says it is finished now this is not a statement of i'm done it's over this is a triumphant declaration that his pain and his suffering is done it's finished the second thing we i think this means is not only is suffering is finished but his purpose his mission is finished. Now you can look through Scripture. There are tons of places where he talks about why he came, what his purpose was. He has come to seek and to save the lost. And on the cross, he's dying for our sins. He has come to give life and to give it abundantly. On the cross, he's enabling that through his death. Or even to the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through His Son the world might be saved. His mission was here. Not only just the mission part of that, but think about this. He, he came to live a perfect life. And we like to think of the temptation of Jesus as happening one time in a desert after 40 days. But the reality is, if he was tempted like you and I are tempted, he was tempted every step of the way of his life to go away from God's plan and to alter what his life would be. I believe strongly that he was tempted in the garden when he says, not my will, but thine be done. God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it this way. He knew the pain that was coming. He knew the suffering that was coming. He knew what was about to happen. He sweated drops of blood. And in the midst of that, he is tempted in that moment to say, I'm done. I'm over. God, take me away. I believe on the cross there was temptation to say, angels, come and take me. It's done. I'm giving up before my mission is complete. I am done. But he doesn't. He sustains until the very end. He lived his entire life, 33 years, without a single sin happening. His thoughts, his life, his actions. And when he gets to this point, he's saying, I did it. I made it. It's done. The mission is complete. And here's what I want you to know. He's basically, and we'll think about this when you think about the last thing he says which is into your spirits i commit my or into your hands i commit my spirit he's basically saying god i have done my part in fulfilling your calling on my life it is now in your hands god and three days later god would raise him from the dead but jesus mission on earth is over third thing that's finished here, is the system. You say, what do you mean by the system? That sounds very, like, anarchist, right? The, down with the system. I mean, any religious system where we try to figure out how to get to God, and they're all over the world. In fact, I want to encourage you. I'm going to give you a little, little 
um, advertisement here in the middle. This Wednesday night, I'm starting a new uh, Bible study on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock, and I'd love for you all to be a part of that. And it's uh, we're going to talk about the the religions of the world. We're going to look at various world religions, and we're going to talk about what they believe, how they got started. But most importantly, we're going to talk about how they fail in understanding what Scripture teaches us about God through Jesus. And ask the question, how do we witness, how do we reach people? And what we're going to find out every week is they are all systems of people trying to figure out how to get to God, how to get good with God, how to get right with God. And Jesus says that, that system is broken and it's never worked completely. And in my cross, in my death, it is finished because I have provided you the true way. You think about how the sacrificial system of the Jews started. It started on Passover when, the, when he gives them the whole understanding after they get through Passover. And you remember that story of how they passed over the Jewish people's homes because they had spread blood on the doorpost and the death angel destroyed the firstborn of all the Egyptians and the, the Israelites run out into the wilderness and they get over on the other side and Moses goes up on the mountain and they already messed things up and Moses comes down the first time because they've said all their gold has jumped into a fire and formed a cow that they're all worshiping and Moses gets mad at them about that and smashes the tablets and has to go back and tell God, I don't know what you did, why you gave me these people, but here's the problem we've got. And then God gives them a whole system of how their sins could be forgiven. Year after year, day after day. And every year they would come together at a thing called Yom Kippur and they would place their hands on a goat after they had sacrificed three times for the sins of the priest and of the priesthood and of the people of God. And then they would put their hands on a goat and they would run the goat out into the wilderness. And that goat was supposed to bear the sins of all the people for the year. And they called it literally the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would leave and they would say, whew, we got our sins forgiven for the year. And the next morning when they woke up, they were thinking, we got to do that again next year because we've already sinned this morning. And every time, every time, the sacrifice wasn't sufficient. By the way, I found something interesting this week. I don't think I'd ever seen this before, but I've looked it up in a couple of places. I think this is fascinating. So there was a, if you were, if you were in a uh, Greek to Hebrew translation class, I know all of you would be excited about that. If you were in a Hebrew to Greek translation class or vice versa, and they gave you the word to telestai, the single word that is used by Jesus on the cross when he says it is finished, if you were to translate that to Hebrew, it would have been translated to a word kala. Now here's the fascinating thing about that, all right? This is what I discovered this week when I was looking. The word kala was used in normal society. And so it was used like to telestine normal society. When you walked around and you finished a carpentry job for your neighbor next door, you'd say, hey, Bob, to telestine, it's finished, done, it's over. So it wasn't a special theological word that Jesus invented here. And kala was kind of a common word as well. But it was used in one specific instance in a religious way. And what would happen is that they would gather together, they would do the sacrifices, and so you know that Jesus was crucified during the Passover when they would have been bringing these spotless lambs to symbolize that they were trusting God to forgive them of their sins, to pass over their sins. And in the midst of that, when they brought the lamb to them, when they brought the sacrifice to them, and he looked over the lamb, and he looked over all that was there, when he looked at the, make sure there were no blemishes, make sure that it was exactly like they had said, the right age and all of that, that when it was deemed sufficient, the priest would say, Kala. 
it is good or it is satisfactory or it is sufficient. So imagine, if you will, in this moment, while the priest in the temple that was a part of the sacrificial system that God had established to have people's sins forgiven again and again and again and again, perhaps as declaring a lamb that has been brought for a family sins, kalah to telestai, that on the cross Jesus is declaring it is no longer valid to, in that place because the ultimate sacrifice has been given to telestai. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Imagine you're that priest. You look at one, kalah, you give it, sacrifice done. Next family, kalah, next one done. It's not really finished. It's not really good enough. It's not really sufficient, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. There's still something coming. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them in those, after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sin. I will never Again, remember their sins. I mean, I don't tell y'all to amen every week, but it seems like I have been lately. But that's good stuff right there. I will remember their sins never. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, of sins, there is no longer an offering needed. The system is finished. Two more. Satan's finished. Think about his turn of events in a couple of days. He thinks he's killed the Son of God and has gained victory over his enemy. And then the tomb turns up empty. Now listen, I I grew up in the 80s and 90s and there was some bad contemporary Christian music in those days. I listen to it all and I love it, so don't talk about it. I can talk bad about it, you can't, all right? There's one particularly cheesy song by a guy named Carmen. Any Carmen fans out there? There we go. I see those hands. All right. It's called The Champion. Y'all remember that one? And The Champion was about the battle between God and Satan, between Jesus and Satan. And it was pitted like it was a boxing match. And Carmen invented kind of rock rap. Now, I don't think he gets credit for it. Well, he probably shouldn't. But he thinks he did, all right? And as he's walking through all that, he says, and Jesus died. And then the referee, who is God, listen, yeah, it's a little out there, starts to count, you know, the ten count to declare him out. But instead of counting one, two, three, he starts counting ten, nine. Pardon me, can't believe I'm doing Carmen illustration right now, but here we are, all right? Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. And while he's doing it, Carmen's also doing the voice of the devil trying to, it's like a little operatic play happening in the midst of this. And he's like, what's going on? You're counting the wrong way. Why are you counting the wrong way? And he gets to two and one. And when he gets to one, he starts singing, he has one. He has risen from the dead and he has one. Can you imagine Satan's turn in two days, three days? 
He goes from we have done it to what have we done. Scripture says this in Colossians 2.15, I love this, that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Satan's kind of like a honeybee that's already stung but is waiting to die. Y'all know honeybee, right? By the way, y'all know honeybees stings hurt more than any of their insects like that and their venom is more powerful than any other insects like that? More powerful than a wasp, yellow jacket. Here's the problem for a honeybee. When they sting you, have you ever been stung by a honeybee? Yeah, that's not fun. When it stings you, the reason that it hurts is because the barb goes inside your skin and stays there which is bad for you, but even worse for the honeybee, right? Because when the honeybee leaves, the stinger stays in. But this is what I discovered this week I didn't know. They've never shown this on one of those Our Planet or Planet Earth or any of that kind of stuff, that when the honeybee comes out, it not only takes the stinger out, but it also rips out its stomach and intestines. Well, that sounds fun, doesn't it? And so when you, walk, when you fly away as a honeybee that doesn't have a stomach or intestines, just let that visual happen for a minute, all right? The problem is you can't eat anymore. And when you can't eat anymore, you eventually starve. And so the honeybee's dead as soon as he stings you, even though it may be a while before it happens. Satan is dead because of what Jesus did on the cross. His eternal future is determined. He's still flailing around like he thinks it's not, but it is. Y'all missing some good amen spots today, but I'm going to... And here's the last thing. All right, we're done. Sin is finished. Second Corinthians says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, and we talked about this extensively last week, he paid the penalty for our sins. And when it comes to this moment when he says to Telestai, he means it is finished. I have paid for the penalty of sin. I have paid the price that will take away the power of sin. I have paid the price that will remove the presence of sin in glory. Right? One day, we are going to spend eternity with sin not around. Now, he has already taken the penalty of sin from our lives. He has justified us so that those of us who are followers of Jesus, and that's an important thing. Let me say, that's very important. This is not just a worldwide thing. This is if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the penalty for your sin then, now, and forever is taken care of. He is in the process of removing the power of sin from our lives so that we aren't victims to sin, slaves to sin, so that we can live in the power and the freedom provided by Jesus Christ. And one day, on the other side, in the by and by, one glad morning, we're going to fly away and we're going to spend eternity in a place where sin is not even present. There is no power, there is no penalty, and there is not even a presence of sin there. That all happened because he died on the cross for us. Colossians 2.14 says this. Man, this is so good. He, Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he has taken it away, how? By nailing it to the cross. Man, think about that picture. He took our death certificate 
the penalty of sin. And when he nailed himself to the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, he nailed our sin with it. Now, I don't know about you, but the last five weeks as we've talked about the words that Jesus said from the cross, I have been overwhelmed again about what he did while he was dying on the cross. Because think about this, and there are lots of other things happening. Obviously, cosmically, spiritually, supernaturally, there are all kinds of things happening. But at the basis of it is a man who is losing his life. And in the midst of that, he starts by telling us that he was thinking of others the whole time. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He reminds us that he knows and cares about every detail of our lives. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. He reminds us it's never too late to ask for forgiveness and to be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. If you're here today and you thought your opportunity has passed, it is never too late. He says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He shows us the extent of his love when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My sin and your sin separated God in a place that had never happened in eternity. And God could not look upon his own son because the sin of the world was on him for three hours that day. He reminds us that God's word will always be true and that every bit of it will come true when he says, I thirst. And he shows us that everything is forever changed when he announces that it is finished. And when all of that is done, the one who created the earth that we live on and that created us surrenders his life into the hands of of his father. Man, my prayer is that I would be someone that would fulfill everything that God has called me to fulfill. And that when I get to that day when it is done, when my life is finished, hopefully my task is done, that I can willfully surrender my life into the hands of my father. On the cross, Jesus gave us a way. My question is, have you accepted the forgiveness that comes from him today? And if so, are you living the mission God's called you to live to remind other people that there is freedom in him? Let's pray together.